Right, uh, so we're up to Ephesians, uh, sorry, up to Acts chapter 5. So what's happened so far? In Acts 1 we saw that uh, Jesus had appeared to his disciples. He ascends up to heaven. It says, go into all the world, into Jerusalem, to, uh, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we can see at this stage in Acts 5, they're still in the Jerusalem. They haven't actually gone out into the world at this stage. In Acts 2, of course, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church in, in a bountiful way that Peter who was too scared to say to the little girl, I'm, I'm with Jesus, now speaks to thousands about the, the dynamics of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's speaking to the very people who actually killed Jesus. So there's a sense that um, he's a very, very brave person. And then as they go out, they're, they're preaching and sharing. And we've seen that uh, the lame man was healed. And of course, the gospel goes out in such a way that thousands upon thousands of people in Jerusalem are now coming Christians. And uh, it was not done without the watchful eye of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the temple rulers and the synagogue uh, management scene. And so when we come to this part here, we're going to see there's a sense of persecution that comes upon the church. So why do we have persecution? And the fact that the church is undergoing persecution, and especially if we look around the world today, there's uh, country after country, every morning on a Sunday morning when we come and pray together, Ian very faithfully gives us a whole of prayer sheets, of uh, different things in the world and probably half our prayers are for persecuted Christians who are being killed for their faith. But this is not new. As you come to this passage this morning, we're going to find out that suffering for Christ started with the apostles themselves and started within weeks of the church being formed. Now this passage is going to give us insight to how we can deal with persecution ourselves, how we can respond to suffering and hopefully give us an idea of uh, how we can pray and support other Christians who go through hard times. So let's turn now to Acts chapter 5, and we're going to go to verse 12 there, where we're going to start our things, and it's going to be talking about signs and wonders. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And there's a sense of well, this idea of signs and wonders. Obviously, signs were healings and uh, miraculous events were happening. Now, where else in Scripture do we see that in a powerful way? And of course, the first and most important one is Pharaoh and Moses back at the beginning of Exodus. So we find in Exodus 7 verse 3 says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land. And when Moses reflects on this back in Deuteronomy 6.22, he says, And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh. And so the first place we see signs and wonders, they're actually not signs and wonders where you say, Praise God, Hallelujah. It was a sense that brought judgment upon those who rejected God. So the signs and wonders had a very powerful impact. Now the second place where signs and wonders are mentioned as a, an idea is in the book of Daniel. Now Daniel was living in a time of immense persecution. And in Daniel 4 verse 2 it says, It seemed good to me to show signs and wonders that the Lord Most High has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. And then it goes on to give us a a very powerful undergirding behind signs and wonders. It says, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And you say, why is Daniel saying this? Because at that time, they had been taken into captivity. The nation has been decimated. And Daniel was saying, you look at the reality of the now, God looks at the reality of the eternal. There's a far bigger picture that we need to be looking at in these times. And he goes on in chapter 6, verse 27 of Daniel to say, He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. 
He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Because what had happened, Daniel had been thrown to the lions then, but survives. It's a sign, it's a wonder, it's a, an event that says, this is pointing towards the fact that God is doing things. So then we've got to say to ourselves, if signs and wonders were a big part of the early church, what about today? Should we be expecting sign, signs and wonders ourselves? Now, it's interesting, um, I picked out a couple of scriptures where signs and wonders were, were uh, emphasized. The first is in John 4.48. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And there are some Christians who say, if we had more signs and wonders, everybody would become Christians. And you're actually saying, you've got to really realize what Jesus was saying. There were people that Jesus cured. There were lepers who'd had leprosy their whole life with no hope for the future. Uh, there's a group of ten ones where Jesus cures them. And nine never bothered to come back to say thank you. It was coincidence. And only one came back. And you start saying, well, maybe there are times that God can do the most miraculous thing in someone's eyes and they will close their eyes and say, no, I'm still not going to believe. My year eight uh, scripture class this week was rather interesting. Our question for, the, uh, for this week was... Uh, what would need to happen for you to know God is true and follow him? And it was quite an insightful discussion with the kids because they're actually working through the fact that I could give them all the evidence in the world that God is true and they could still say no. And I've had kids that say, I know Jesus died. I know he came back to life again. I know he's going to come back and judge the world. I know there's a God, but I'm not going to believe. And you think, well, what else can you do? And so uh, Jesus tells us that signs and wonders alone don't convert people. And uh, if you look throughout Scripture, what converts people? The Holy Spirit convicting somebody. And so when I pray for people, my biggest prayer is, God, convict them by your Holy Spirit. And uh, I can think of uh, wives in our church with husbands who aren't Christians. What do you pray? Convict my husband by the Holy Spirit. And uh, you can be the most loving husband, give him the most greatest evidence. But at the end of the day, it's a person's heart with God. So what's the other worry about signs and wonders? And it comes in Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And so uh, signs and wonders can be godly, but signs and wonders can be ungodly. And my third scripture is, 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 is the opposite, because the first two scriptures are saying, be careful, you know, be, be discerning. But the next part is from Romans 15, verse 18. And actually it says, I think it's going to say here when we look at it, that there are ways that God will work in signs and wonders, that God will work in your life, God will do miraculous things. There'll be coincidences that happen far too often. And you know that it's God's hand working those situations. So it says in Romans 15, and Paul's writing very passionately to the Christians in Rome, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. So his heart's desire, his mission desire, was to see the lost found, those without hope saved. And that is the central message he has all the time. So he doesn't say, oh, let's do a miracle for miracle's sake. He's let's do a miracle because I want to draw people to Christ. I want them to see God's sovereign hand. So he says... Um, uh, what Christ has accomplished uh, through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by two things, by word and deed. There is actions 
and the gospel being presented. In verse 19, by the powers of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem to all the way to Ilikum, which is uh, in modern-day Albania, which for us be from all the way from Sydney all the way to Broken Hill. It's saying, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So Paul never saw his miracles as an end within themselves. They would draw people to Christ. So there's a sense that we need to be praying, draw people to Christ. Now when people are sick, I'll pray for the healing. And uh, sadly, I regularly don't expect them to be healed because <laughs> when they get healed, that's what makes it a miracle. Because if you prayed for the healing, you just assume it's all going to happen, then it kind of takes that miraculous miracle factor out. So when they're healed, I, I just think God's sovereign hand is amazing how it's working. So here he is. He starts his message very, very powerful about uh, the signs and wonders. So what happens next? In verse 12 of Acts chapter 5, it says they're all together in Solomon's portico because that's the very place where the lame man had been healed. And uh, when the lame man had been healed, they took him to Solomon's portico. So where is this? It's, um, it's on the eastern side of the temple outer court and it's near the women's court. So it's obviously a larger area where people could come and gather. And then in verse 13, let's see what happens for the story. None of the rest there joined them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes above men and women. So the powerful impact of these signs and wonders was salvation faith for many. So what's the people's response when this happened? Verse 15. So they, were, uh, they started carrying out the sick into the streets. They laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And uh, there's this nearly a superstitious sense of if Peter's walking down the street, if he's just his shadow, that'll save the people. Say, so, no, the shadow doesn't save anybody. It's Christ who saves people. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So you imagine some poor family with a 12-year-old son who had been born disabled and the, the grief of a mother thinking, my poor child will never be able to do sport, may never get a job, they'll be frail and disabled, they may never marry, I might never have grandchildren. You've got this poor child and they hear the disciples that are doing what Jesus was doing. And they said, I always want to take my son to Jesus. Let's go to Jerusalem. And the husband said, that's a long way to go. You know? You know, I've got work to do. He says, well, no, we've got to go. And they carry the child in the back for hour after hour just to get to the city of Jerusalem. Imagine the joy when Peter prays for this child and the child can suddenly walk. And he's got feet that are normal. And how much impact that would have upon the family. Now the sad thing is uh, we can see the crowds were joyous. They're exuberant with what was happening. But if you ran the temple, the Sadducees, or if you were the Pharisees who ran the synagogues, you'd say to yourself, we have killed this man. How dare his followers get his people all drummed up? There's only a small group at the end who were faithful to him. Now every man and his dog is following Jesus. We've got to stop this. So we find Acts chapter 5, verse 17. The high priest rose up, the very man who killed Jesus, and all who were with him, that is the party of Sadducees, are filled with jealousy. They arrest the apostles and put them into a public prison. Why are they jealous? Because people love Jesus. They love Peter and the disciples. They love the kingdom of God coming powerfully upon the nation. They love the transformation that's happening. And there's a sense of our sermons are dead. Our words are powerless. 
and sadly we find the Pharisees especially were quite arrogant in how they viewed the rest of common man Jerusalem. They really saw them as scum and second-class citizens. And suddenly the disciples are making vibrance happen. So they arrested and put them into a public prison. Then Acts 15 verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, if I've been Peter and I've been arrested and I'm in prison and the thought was an angel of the Lord has let me go free, my first reaction was I better go and hide somewhere until the angel speaks. And this is where it gets pretty scary because it says three key things. The first one is, go and stand in the temple. He says, my gosh, that's where I got arrested. Why would I go back there? And when you go there, speak to the people. So very clearly, you go and stand there, part one. Part two, start preaching again. He says, that's what I got me arrested last time. What would do that? And what are you going to preach about? All the words of this life. In other words, you're going to give eternal life. You're going to give power. You're going to give transformation. You're going to give new hope. And that's what I want you to do. Go back to the temple and speak about Jesus. And now in the next section, we're going to learn of five ways that we can respond to persecution for ourselves, but also for the church universal as we pray for other Christians. So what's the first thing we're going to learn? We're going to learn that in our Jesus and through God is in the midst of all our suffering. Now it's interesting, why do we know God is in the midst of our suffering? When Jesus was laid out upon the cross and they stretched his hands and they put the nail against his wrist, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And for the early church, many knew from the day of their conversion the cost of that decision. For the Apostle Paul in Acts 19 verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen vessel of mine, which is Paul, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And then the man who is to lead Paul to Christ is told, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. It's interesting, the very first thing Paul's told after he becomes a Christian wasn't, God has a wonderful life planned for you, it was, you will suffer these things for my name's sake. So if we look at, at Paul's life, as Paul reflected on his ministry, how did he see what happens? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 8 to 12 is a very powerful passage that uh, reflects Paul's thoughts. Paul says that we were perplexed, but not in despair. We were persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Paul grasped the struggle he faced. And if you want to read a powerful book, 2 Corinthians is just full of uh, the struggles that Paul goes through as he faces false teachers, false teaching and persecution and just his faithfulness in all these situations. On that first Pentecost Sunday, 
Peter, who's too scared to say, I'm a follower of Jesus only days earlier, preaches. But when Peter gets towards the end of his life, as he reflects back on suffering, what does he say? In 1 Peter 4 verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in this matter. So what's the first thing we've been told to do? In the midst of suffering, glorify God. Give him honour and praise. One of the things that has horrified me, I, I don't know how they can do it because uh, they have, that they've been really lovingly gracious. Uh, in Egypt especially, there have been church after church that has been burnt to the ground. There's been Christian after Christian has been killed for their faith. There's been churches that have been bombed on the most sacred of, uh, of church calendar days. And you'd then say, if I was a Coptic Christian, what would I do? Would I be out there yelling for blood, you know, kill those ruthless Muslims, you know, how dare they do this? And many of them have gone back to the very churches, they have, the roof is gone, the place is broken, and they've written on the walls, we love you and want you to know Jesus. The most powerful reaction they've had is, you can bomb us, but God will never stop loving you and wanting you to come into his kingdom. So what's the second thing we learn out of this passage as we go through what uh, they did? We need to stay true to God and stay true to preaching his word. So in Acts chapter 5, verse 21, And when they heard this, as in what the, temple, uh, the angel had said to them, they entered the temple, exactly as they've been told to do, at daybreak. And what did they do? Began to teach. They did what the angels said they should do. They remained faithful, they remained true, they remained honest to the word of God. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senators of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought out because they didn't know they'd, they'd escaped. But when the officer came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned it and reported it. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found nobody inside, which would have been quite upsetting for them. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them. So they're just thinking, what's going to happen next? And someone comes and says to them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching people. In other words, what they were doing yesterday, they're doing the same stuff again today. Exactly what they got arrested for hasn't stopped them. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They knew that they didn't have the, the heart of the people. They weren't the crowd yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. They would have been cheering, we like Peter, we like Peter, we like the disciples, this is a good thing. So when they brought them in, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Now it's fascinating, from this moment here in scripture, right through the last 2,000 years, it's interesting how many Jewish people will never say Jesus' name. They will use slang terms that are derogatory about Jesus, but never use his name. They say, you guys preach in that person's name. They won't even mention Jesus' name. Why? Because that very name of Jesus is the name that we can be saved by. So strictly we charge not to teach this name. Yet here you are, you have filled Jerusalem with all your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. He said, well, you deserve it because you're the guys who killed him. Now get over it. 
you did it. So what's the third thing we find in terms of persecution? When we're facing our enemy, no compromise. We don't soften the message to somehow make it more palatable for them. <laughs> Acts 5.29 But Peter and the apostles answered together, We must obey God <coughs> rather than men. No compromise. And what's the fourth part of the message? In the midst of suffering and persecution everything, where was their focus? Jesus. Where was their focus? The gospel and wanting to see people saved. They never lost heart of the central purpose of what they needed to do. So they're in Acts 5 verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. So they didn't beat about the bush. They said exactly what happened. But God exalted him at the right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. They preached, there is God, you have sinned, Jesus has died for you, you need to repent, and those who repent will be forgiven by God. That message was core in the midst of persecution. And the fifth aspect of what happens in persecution for you and I is this, that the Holy Spirit comes and empowers us in the midst of what's happening. So there in Acts 5.32, we're all witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And so the priest very powerfully got to say, what happens next? What do the, you know, if I was the chief priest, if I was the high, the high priest, if I was a synagogue member, if I was part of the Jewish uh, temple council, if I was part of the Sanhedrin, I'm part of the authority figures. But what can I say in the midst of all this overwhelming evidence? Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And you think, well, that could have been their death at that point. But verse 34, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honour by all the people. And it's interesting, uh, Gamaliel turns up elsewhere in Scripture. Now, Gamaliel himself was a Pharisee. He was a very conservative man. He would have been more of a synagogue person than a temple person. He's also the grandfather of one of the most famous preachers of all time, a man called Rabbi Hillel. It's a bit like saying, I'm, you know, Billy Graham's my granddad. Like his grandfather, Gamaliel was known for taking a rather lenient or a softer view on Old Testament law. He was not so legalistic. So in the Pharisees, you had people who were a bit more softer, a bit more compassionate. And the other group, who followed a guy called Rabbi Shammai, were far more stringent and legalistic. Now, Gamaliel may be better known to you and I for one of his most famous pupils. Who in the Bible was a pupil of Gamaliel? Saul, who became Paul. So Pharisee Saul, who uh, was passionate to kill the Christians, who on the road uh, goes blind to Damascus, who Ananias comes and says, you will suffer this my name, who then goes on to preach, had been tutored and taught the scriptures by Gamaliel. And so this man Gamaliel stands and speaks. Now it's interesting, Paul's educational and professional credentials allowed him to preach in the synagogues wherever he travelled. And Paul's uh, grasp of Old Testament history and law aided him in his presentation of Jesus fulfilling the law. And part of his skills was from this man Gamaliel. It next goes on to say, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So the disciples are removed so they can have a bit more of a chat. 
Then in verse 35 of Acts 5, it says, He said to the men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claimed to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. They were killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Now, it's interesting, uh, Josephus mentioned a Thaddeus, but it's obviously a different one. It's a common name. But uh, Josephus has a great insight in this time. He writes this, that there were numerous uprisings saying there were at least 10,000 disorders. So we're living in rebellious times. The disciples were not the first rebellious spirit they'd ever faced in Jerusalem. Then in Acts 5.37, we're given a second illustration. After this, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And so some people would look at this man as uh, there were three uh, schools within um, Judaism. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees. Uh, there's a group called the Essenes that we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the fourth group that was started with the, uh, the, the political right-wing rednecks, who were called the Zealots. And some of these Zealots look back to this Judas the Galilean as their founder. So verse 38, so in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you'll not be able to overthrow it. And the next line is quite powerful because you think this guy is a leader in the Sanhedrin. And he's talking about the disciples and he says, you may find you're opposing God. So even though he was defiantly against the Christians, he says, don't kill them. Let them do their course. If it's from God, it'll be from God. We can't stop it. If it's not from God, it'll just fall apart one day. But be careful that we don't find that we're actually fighting God. So they took his advice. They called the apostles. And you say, oh, great, you guys, are, we'll let you go scot-free. And you think, that would be really lovely if that happened. But it doesn't happen. What do they do? They beat them. So they beat the living families out of the disciples, which is their way of saying, please don't speak about this guy again because we'll beat you again. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. So uh, they didn't get off as lightly as they could have, but they weren't killed. Then in verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for his name. So they're standing up with black eyes and blood coming out their ears and nose and... They're hurting all over. And they go, praise God. Look what God allowed us to do in his name. We were beaten up for Christ. We're having impact on the Sanhedrin. We might be able to see some of them come to Christians. Wouldn't it be great if these guys joined our church? That was their reaction. And you say, wow, what an amazing response to suffering. And what response do we have? Verse 42. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were told to be silent, but they were not. They were told not to preach, but they did. They were told not to use the name of Jesus, but that was the name that was upon their lips. So when we face persecution, are we faithful? Are we rejoicing in what God is doing? Do we focus on what Christ is doing in our lives or focus on all the here and now. When we pray for Christians who are facing persecution, is our prayer, Dear God, may they glorify your name. 
May they speak powerfully about who you are. May they uh, be praying to change the lives of those who oppress them. Because that needs to be our prayer when we face persecution. Let's just bow heads in prayer now. Heavenly Father, help us when we are uh, persecuted. Help us for the times when we face suffering. Help us when that persecution comes from members of our own family who just want to take chips at us. Help us when our friends will let us down. Father, may we never compromise our faith. May we be always firm in our word and our honour and our praise of you. Amen. Mm-hmm.